Okay, so I'm glad you're here. Um, it's almost Purim, and just wanted to just send out a, send out a message. So, um, <laughs> no, this kind of came to me. It's a, this will be short. This will only be a couple of minutes, but um, just wanted to get this out there. So, uh, I want to put two things together that that I, I don't know if normally you would think of them as one thought. So, so. What, what, one is just an, an interesting observation, which is that, you know, Purim and Pesach are, are two very closely related holidays, and they're amazing, amazing connections between the two of them. Um, basically, on, on the sort of most macro level, Purim represents how even when it seems like God is completely concealed, he's right there. And Pesach, of course, is, you know, we've got all the miracles taking place and leaving Egypt and everything like that. So that's sort of like God in his most revealed state. So we have the hiddenness of God and the revelation of God. And, and of course, these two holidays are, are 30 days apart. And Purim takes place in the, the, the last month of the year. Uh, Pesach is right there in the, the first month of the year. And, um, and then the most mind-blowing uh, connection, for me anyway, is that the holiday of Purim, the miracle of Purim, where Haman was defeated on the calendar, and check in the Megillus Esther itself, these these dates are actually recorded in the Megillus Esther, the holiday of Purim, the miracle of Purim, took place on Pesach. So that's that, that in itself is amazing. But anyway, we could go on and on and on and on about the connections. But one more connection, which was new to me for this year, is that both stories end with the receiving of the Torah. Because, um, as you know, the Ramban is sort of most famous for this thought, that, the, that, uh, that, that Pesach and, and Shavuos, um, where we get the Torah at Mount Sinai 50 days later, is basically one long holiday. And that those, uh, those 49 days that we count in between, Sphiris um, HaOmer, that basically that's one long Cholamoid um, for one one big holiday. So, which makes sense. It makes total sense. But but here you see Pesach ends with the receiving of the Torah, and Purim ends also with the receiving of the Torah. So both of these holidays, Purim and Pesach, both culminate with the receiving of the Torah. Of course, by Purim, famously it says, Kimlu Vekiblu, which means that they, they received, and, and in, in the Talmud, the, the sages explain that they re-accepted the Torah. So, so anyway, well, I wasn't going to throw in this thought, but, but this might be the best, <laughs> the, the best one that I was going to add. So let me just add it just to get it out there. Um, hope you like it. So what is this? So I really kind of like, kind of wanted to know, I just uh, wanted to dig down and, and figure out what is this re-receiving of the Torah that we got at the end of the Purim story? Okay. <clears throat> Because we weren't at Mount Sinai, this is a long time after the Torah is given at Mount Sinai. I am I am going to estimate a good thousand or more years, maybe maybe more. So um, so anyway, there was no formal kind of declaration that everyone kind of stood up and said, you know, we are reaccepting the Torah or something like that. So so in other words. It you know when you kind of scratch the surface and dig down a little bit, 
it's a little bit strange, this this like very strong declaration of the sages. And they, they say, no, nah, just look right in the Megillah. It says it right in the Megillah that we re-accepted the Torah. What did that look like exactly? So, so it was a bit, it's a bit of a challenging question. So the Chidush Rim says that we, we accepted it in our heart on a deeper level, the Torah in our heart on a deeper level, which means that, which means that there was a, a, a realization on the part of the Jewish people after God saved us from this threat of genocide that God, that, that God is really there in a way that we didn't quite understand that he was there at Mount Sinai. Because it seems to have been a, a, a deeper, more profound acceptance of the Torah. So again, we're left with the same question: What actually happened? What, what you know? What was it? You know? What was that acceptance? So it's very hard to say that we thought. You know what? Since since Purim, as we mentioned before, represents that God is even there when it seems like He's not there at all. So you could say that's that's what we realize that God is is always there, but it would be very hard to say that we didn't already reach that conclusion at Mount Sinai. And one of my favorite teachings that I've, I've shared with you before, the Medrash says that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that, you know, what's the, what's the science of echoes, so to speak? That the sound waves hit off something other than the sound waves itself, and then they bounce off, like in a cave or something like that. But when God spoke, there is nothing other than God in the world. So how are you going to get an echo? What, what is God's voice going to bounce off of that isn't God himself, since the only thing that truly exists is God? So, so, so it would be hard to say at Mount Sinai we realized that God is always there, because that was a very Mount Sinai type understanding that we got. So we're left with this question. There seems to have been a deeper acceptance of the Torah at, at the end of the Purim story. But what, what was it? So I'd like to suggest an answer. This is um, just my own answer coming from kind of just trying to wrestle with this question. And... Um, I'd like to bring sort of like a famous Hasidic story as just as a way to introduce an answer to this question. So um, it, it's actually, I think I heard it in the name of the, the young Ger Rebbe, that's the Chidush Rim who we mentioned earlier. So, so it's a famous story. So it goes like this, that uh, he was a child prodigy, a child genius, and, in, and you know an older rabbi said to him, I'll give you, I don't know what the, currency was at that time, a kopeck, a, a ruble, whatever it was. I'll give you a, a kopeck if you can tell me where God is. And this young child said back to him, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't. And that's the end of the story. It's deep. That's deep. And you know that the young, that the young child got the better of the rabbi. But I remember like when I first started learning Torah seriously, I, I was like, that's a great story. I love that story. But why is it a great story? Like, what, what was that debate that they were having that he clearly won? But what were they debating exactly? So I thought about it, and, um, and I thought like this. You see, 
it's one thing to say, what, what answer was the older rabbi looking for? When he said to him, I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where, where God is. I think, in my opinion, he was looking for the young child to say, God is everywhere. And if you say, God is everywhere, okay, that's the right answer, you win, okay? So, so there's a problem with that answer. As, as deep and as true as it is, there's, there's actually, conceptually speaking, humanly speaking, a problem with that answer. The problem is, is that the mind ultimately is finite and God is infinite. And so if you say that God is everywhere, you're basically positing the infinite. But if you have a finite brain, the finite brain can hold the present, can hold the, the, the fullness of your own answer. So, so what's, what's the problem with that? But you could imagine the infinite. I mean, it's true you can't like exactly fully understand the infinite, but you could imagine the infinite. Shouldn't, isn't that enough? And, and the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. Because when you imagine something which is absolutely beyond you, right, it becomes conceptual. And you turn, ultimately, the reality of God, who's here and now, right in front of you, filling, filling the world, into something that's an abstraction. In other words, in an attempt to sort of like fathom the utmost, you end up, you end up paying a price, because God then just becomes an idea as opposed to the reality. So now, let's... Let's let's look at the answer that the that the boy gives that the I believe it was the young Chidusha Rim gives, and you see you see why it's so 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 much deeper what he said. He said, "I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't." See, instead of this ever expanding sort of like if you imagine a triangle or pyramid just ever expanding, going out and out and out and out and out and out. Like, pointed in the opposite direction, where all of a sudden, every single moment becomes the pinpoint of the presence of God in this world in your life. Or, or a lightning rod, you know? In other words, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't. That means that God is here, and 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 God is here. He's not absent from this moment. He's not absent from that moment. And so it's the other end of this conceptual spectrum where instead of trying to fathom something which is ultimately beyond the human intelligence, you go in the absolute opposite direction and what you're doing is just focusing on every single moment in the here and now within the context of your own life and you're seeing it, oh yeah, yeah, here it is, 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 here it is. And this might sound like semantics, but believe me, I'm promising you, this is not semantics. This is really, this is a, a completely different paradigm in consciousness. And now, all of a sudden, it's, everything is, is becoming real. Okay, so now with that introduction, I'd like to apply that same type of thinking to try to answer this question. Because what did we say? We said that at Mount Sinai, God was, 
there was no echo. God's presence was already presence was already made completely manifest. We knew it. We understood it. We said, God, that's it. That's all. All there is is God. You know, this is His will. Okay, we got to we got to do it. We we want to do it. You know. Okay, so. So I want to phrase it like this. And yet, you see that there was this new type of acceptance of the Torah after Purim. Well, if it already, again, just to phrase the question, if it already seems that the the, the level of acceptance of the Torah at Mount Sinai was absolute, what room does that leave for a new idea, much less an even deeper idea, for re-acceptance in Purim, in in Babylonia? Like, maybe it was 2,000 years later. Okay? So... Okay, so now let's let's apply that what we've been saying about the with the chedushim. Let's 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 try to apply it to this. So I'd like to suggest at Mount Sinai, we knew God was with us always. After the end of the Purim story, we understood that God was never not with us. What's the difference? God is with us always. Okay, you know what? I'm always there for you. Okay, but I that sounds good. I love it. I love it. But I can't ultimately fathom what that means. You're never not there for me? Oh, you're never not there for me. That means, aha, uh-huh, every single moment. Even when I think that you're, this time you're not going to be there for me. No, 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 I'm never not there for you. But but this time you, you, you're not going to be there. Like, right now you're completely concealed. So it must be that this time you're never, you're not there with us. No, no, no. I'm never not there with you. Again, it, 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 it points it and makes it direct in every single moment. And it's not just this flighty, conceptual, abstract thing. Ah, the presence of God. Ooh, it's not that anymore. It's, oh, it's real. It's in the here and now. Okay. So, you know, um, that's my answer. I, I hope that that's meaningful. Um, I, I just want to sort of try to fit that answer now into the language of Tosafos, okay? So, um, Tosafos famously gives an explanation, and, and it's... It's going to sound like it's a totally different answer, but I, I, I'd like to suggest how maybe, maybe it fits into what I was talking about. He says that at, at Mount Sinai we accepted the written Torah, but it was at the end of the Purim story that we accepted the Torah Shabbat Pad, the, the, the oral law. And what, what's the difference between the written law and the oral law? Well, the written law, that's, that's from God through Moshe. It's all written down. Here it is, guys. What's the oral law? What's, what's the Talmud? Talmud is the Torah as it gets filtered through a human being. It's um, basically, it's a giant, massive book of argumentation. Questioning God on every level. Questioning the halacha. Why this? But, 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 but no, 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 but, but there's this. No, no, no. And then ultimately coming up with answers. And ultimately, the, the Talmud often says, hey, we don't know. You know, when Eliyahu, the prophet, comes at the end of days, we're going to ask him. And till then, we don't know. So, you know, very beautiful that the Torah, or the Talmud rather, will, will, the, the debates will end with a big take, you know, we don't know. 
so so very intellectually honest. Um, so so that's that's what I'd like to suggest that it means that the that Purim ends with the with the acceptance of Tor Shabal Peh, which is which is that that human component because you see Torah Shabbat Tzav the written the written law is ultimately beyond us. I mean that's that's given to us through 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 prophets. It's beyond, and we know that that Moshe ultimately was on the forty ninth level at the end of his like the fiftieth level of prophecy. It's it's he went up to Shemayim to get it's it's beyond 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 beyond. But the oral law that that type of argumentation that type of understanding filters through each person to the way that you have to understand it. You have to know it. And so to tie this all back in together, so that's the reacceptance of the Torah at Purim. That's the understanding that God is there ultimately, that you understand it with your mind in the most rational, realist way, where it's not beyond you. But because it's gone through you, because you've gone through this experience, you understand it in the realest of the realest of the realest of ways. Okay, the truth is I wasn't going to share that thought at all, and, and, and now I feel like that was the main thought. But I'm going to try to uh, tell you what I was going to tell you. <laughs> okay. It's a different thought. It's a different thought, but um, this was the, the the two thoughts that I, I don't think are normally necessarily uh, tied together. But 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 here we go. So so according to acor- according to one of the classic explanations, the reason why um, the reason why uh, the the decree came down was because um, we attended the the fast of. Achashverus. And there are some opinions that there was even kosher food there for the Jews. And so if that's the case, that there was kosher food there, and like what 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 was the problem with going to this feast? And so so the explanation that I heard, which I just thought was really brilliant and and you know speaks to us today, was you see the the, the problem is that at the feast, Ahasuerus was laying out was was laying out the vessels from from the destroyed Beis Hamikdash, and even wearing the robes of the the coin gadol. And so, what he was celebrating was the fact that the the prophecy that the Jews would return after seventy years turns out that he had miscalculated. But from his mistaken point of view, that that prophecy. That the that the date had passed, and that the Jews were never going back to Israel. And and so, that was one of the, the maybe it was the major point of this celebration. And the fact that the Jews were celebrating there didn't have to do anything with there was kosher food there wasn't kosher food that's that's irrelevant to this point, because there was a larger point here which is that we were sharing in his celebration that we were never going back to our land. And so, so this decree came down. So from this, you see something I think very strong, which is that there seems to be a direct correlation between our understanding that we 
as a people have a mission in this world and to the extent that we lose sight of the fact that we have a mission in this world we, we become in danger of disappearing altogether and you know if you, if you were to go up to I think just, I don't know, probably the great majority of Jewish people in this world, and you were asked them, why are you a Jew? I think most people would would answer because my, you know, my because my parents were Jewish, or my mother was Jewish, or father, whatever it is. And because theirs were, and theirs were, and theirs were. So it's a, it's a, it's a backward-looking kind of formulation. And now it's like, tag, you're it, you know? I was born, and so it was passed to me. Doesn't mean I want it, but... That's the reality, and there you have it. <clears throat> so, if you go back to the beginning of Judaism, and I heard Rabbi Freeman make this point, I, I was moved by it, to Abraham and Sarah, Avram and Sarah, if you ask them, why are you Jewish? They're not going to tell you because my father or my, my, my mother was Jewish, because their parents weren't Jewish. They were the first Jews. And they're the architects of Judaism, since they're the mother and father of Judaism, right? So, from here you see a very important point, which is that from its origin point, Judaism is not just looking backwards. You're Jewish because your parents were Jewish, and now you have to be Jewish. But the, the founders of the religion itself couldn't look backwards, because that, that didn't apply to them, which means that they must have been looking forward. In other words, Tying it back to this idea that when we lose sight of our mission, we, we basically, you know, we become vulnerable to, to disappearing altogether, is that is one of the essential things that one has to understand in terms of the Jewish vision of the world is that it's a forward-looking tradition. And, and what is our forward-looking, what, what is it, if you want to just explain it in one sentence? It's the fixing of the world itself. It's the end of hunger. It's the end of, it's the end of war. It's the revelation of the oneness of God. It's 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 peace. It's it's a, it's a beautiful utopian vision for reality. An incredible thing. And so, the Purim story ends with the acceptance of the Torah, as as we discussed. And. In other words, the story begins with our losing sight of what our mission is. And maybe even in, in, a, in a darker version of this, a celebration that perhaps we are free of a mission. And, but the story ends with our re-acceptance of this mission and, and, and the Torah itself. Because how do we express our commitment our, our desire to fix the world. And that is through through keeping the Torah itself. So it, it ends with us sort of like shunting aside our mission, or it begins that way, and it, it ends with our re-acceptance of the actual tools for how to, how to sort of engage the world with the mission, which is the mitzvahs of the Torah. And, 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 in the realist way, right? It's, it's sort of filtered through the human consciousness. So, so good Purim, good Purim should just be 
an unbelievable experience with just so much joy and so much oneness and, you know, just so much love.